Hello and welcome to the second unit with me, Freddie Nui, and Megan Dobson. Say hello, hello Meg. Hello. <laughs> um, today's episode, we're um, started off saying, hi, this is a Hong Kong cinema podcast, and what is this, episode three, and we're already left Hong Kong, so fickle as ever. Because mm-hmm. um, we're watching Howl's Moving Castle. What were your thoughts? Good. I liked you it. Liked yeah. It? Uh, much more than the much more than the last two films we watched. Drunken Master was good. House Flying Daggers I didn't like. This I liked. I'd seen um, Spirited Away before. That was my only uh, Ghibli Miyazaki experience, and I I like Spirited Away, so I thought I'll probably like House Moon Castle, and I think I did. I think I liked it. I think. <laughs> I think I liked it. I didn't. Um, I'll be honest. I didn't fully, I didn't fully follow it, but I don't think I was really was I meant to follow it because it's all sort of you know dreamy and whoa, you know. Um, or am I, I just a like bit dumb? Maybe you should have followed it a little bit. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I finished it. There was a lot of points where I was like, wait, what's happening? Wait, what? Who, who are these? And I thought I could look up a plot, or I could just, you know, hit record and say, hey Meg. Explain to me the plot of House Moving <laughs> Castle. So, do you want to take that away? Okay. So, um, it's about Sophie, who's 18. She's yep. essentially like the plain Jane. She's really timid, really shy, whatnot. Yes. Um, she encounters a wizard called Hal, who is mm-hmm. in every way opposite to her. He's selfish, he's childish, he's just annoying. And... Um, this witch is jealous of how taking a shining to Sophie, so curses Sophie to look like an old woman. Yeah. And then the story is kind of her tracking down how to see if she can be changed back. Right. Was that really her goal? She felt pretty... She sort of just took the whole old woman thing in stride, I thought. But she makes a deal with Calcifer, doesn't she? Does she? Yes. <laughs> I did I did watch this film. I did. So... I promise you. Yeah, she what makes did a deal. change her back. I thought she just sort of because she was gradually sort of changing back over the course of the film. Yeah, no, that's how she essentially broke it is with her happiness. But um, mm. she, when she first enters the castle, she makes a deal with Calcifer, and you kind of see. Oh, she, she made. I thought she was just sort of threatening him, like, ah, I'll make it, I'll do it, and then she doesn't really. <laughs> but she actually did that. Yes. So the deal was okay. that Calcifer would be set free, and he would break Sophie's spell. But it ends up going a bit skewiff because Calcifer feels like he's at home with a little family and Sophie... Mm, yeah, he comes back. Yeah. Little shooting star boy. <laughs> a little demon. Mm, which, um, yeah, I didn't I didn't watch the... Um, didn't watch dubbed, but that's um, Billy Crystal, isn't it, in the... Yes. English dub. No, it's interesting. I... Christian Bale and Billy Crystal both mm. really, really like... Miyazaki and his films and Christian Bale actually wrote and said he desperately wanted to be in a Miyazaki film really and the so the dub the dub for Howl's Moving Castle was given to Pixar to sort and the yeah yeah so Pixar's Pete Dector who's done multiple films he's like kind of lesser to second hand man um is the like the man who was in charge of the Americanization of Miyazaki's film. 
and I see. so that's how Christian Bale and B. Crystal got these parts is because uh, Dexter went around listening to other people's audios and they were like oh well he really wants to be in it let's get him to do it I've heard mm. his voice his voice is good so I see and we that. want and we want Mike Wazowski for the fire pit. <laughs> exactly yeah okay um, yeah so I did I did I did well, apparently I didn't quite follow the whole deal thing at the end with her changing back, but I, I followed most of what you said. That wasn't mm. the issue for me. But it was this, this war that was happening at the same time. Who was who was at war? So... Does it matter? Is it just sort of a backdrop? Do we know? Well, it is a backdrop. With, with Miyazaki, it's an incredibly complicated director because he grew up in the aftermath of um, Hiroshima right. and Nagasaki. So... All of his films are centred around anti-war ideology and also environmentalism. You see a lot of his films um, are very much... the. There's always like a MacGuffin. If Hitchcock has money and theft, Miyazaki yeah. has environmental destruction and um, things like that. So this war... The, the novel itself, because How's Moving Castle is based on a novel, but that novel is Welsh. I think it's based off like World War Two dynamics. World War Two. Yeah, so it's, but, a, it's a fictional land, and it's yeah, a, a fictional yes. place in God. But um, yeah, the writer, she's Welsh, and the war obviously in the Blitz destroyed a lot of historical mm. places. I mean, ravaging the countryside and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like an underlying thing. <laughs> so it's not really because because there's a there's a a king who's trying to like get how to work for him, and he is and he is involved in the war. He's like mowing down planes as a little raven boy as well. But that's of Hal's own narcissism. He's doing that for the sake of he doesn't like uh, planes coming to his land or his pretty areas and things like that. He's not actually involved in the war or what's good or bad. He just doesn't want people being in his area. I see. If that makes sense. Okay. Okay. I think I'm with you. Essentially, it's doesn't really matter (laughs) the main conflict is i'm an old woman get me out of here Mm. well it's hot it's a love story isn't it yeah why did why did she love him so much i it's a very what does she see in him so so one of the the main things that people say about house moving castle is it's kind of like a realistic love story in that yes there's loads of magic and there's all of this but it does it doesn't sell the disney lie which is you know, uh, if if you love someone hard enough, they'll change for you and things like that. Um, Sophie and Hal are both fundamentally flawed. And instead of trying to convince each other of changing that, they just get on with it. Sophie at the end is still insecure, is still grumpy, is still um, shy, but she's learned a little bit how to stand up for herself and be fierce. At the end of it, Hal is still immature, he's still childish. But he's learnt to be forgiven and forgive Sophie for turning his hair ginger. So they're still the same person at the end of the story. They've just accepted each other's flaws. And that's why, I Mm. guess, it doesn't sell the lie of um, you have to change or someone has to change in order for you guys to be together. Mm, Okay, yeah, because she accidentally turns his hair ginger, but then (laughs) it sort of just changes to black. Yeah. How did that happen? (laughs) He did it. So. He did it. He sort of just (laughs) squeezed hard enough. It's like um, the so Miyazaki kept very truthful to the novel. There's almost a line by line comparison of when Sophie is cooking breakfast and giving 
calcifera prod and she almost like mm. kills him by taking him oh, out of the that, ashes you know that bacon looked good didn't it? Oh. see that's the thing with ghibli as well is everything is romanticized miyazaki wants you to fall in love with the little details it's very much about life is worth living and not because of someone but because look around at the because world of the bacon it's beautiful well, it's very pretty bacon come on oh god it's so good cartoon <laughs> food is one of my weaknesses every single ghibli film has some dish that is the most delicious looking thing in ponyo mm. they have raymond and ham and egg on it and um totoro yeah, they have I, like you know street vendors <laughs> pardon i think i saw binging with babish do the ponyo ramen Oh my god, it just looks Bing. so mm. amazing. But then, but then, a different film, I know, but Spirited Away, there's all that food and it looks good, but then it turns her parents into like weird pig people, so. Well, that's a metaphor for capitalism. Because <laughs> they're greedy and they, they uh, enter an area that isn't theirs and they start taking without permission. Oh and thus god. they get turned into pigs because they're greedy. Miyazaki likes a lot of uh, transformation ideology in his films and he also likes to play with gender roles slightly like um with spirited away you've got this girl who goes into a land that isn't hers and she crosses a threshold into the afterlife essentially or where the spirits live and whatnot um right and like she's kind of loses her humanness while she's there and she meets a boy who can transform into a dragon or whatnot uh, with House Moving oh, yeah. Castle, Sophie turns into an old woman, Hal turns into a raven, Calcifer mm. turns into a bit of shininess star thingy. Yeah. You know, uh, and like. Big woman turns into an old woman. <laughs> exactly. And um, in Princess Mononoke, which is my, one mm, of my personal favourites, in mm. Princess Mononoke, you have this boy who's um, essentially a male representative of Venus. Venus is a boy. And uh, he goes into an iron factory when he's come from a little village that very much is a village that lives off the land. And his transformation is to, like, become, like, more empathetic, more strong, being able to stand up for the people in his village, things like that. It's, um, mm. it's, uh, it's really, like, a lot so, of overlapping things. So so Miyazaki's, Miyazaki is interested in, like identity and change mm -hmm. and growing yeah good because that was i won't i don't think i'm going to get into it right now i think i might end with my <laughs> with my my big my big theories uh but that is the my main takeaway was all about yeah how the film is using war and and all this whimsical nonsense to tell a story really about people and how we change yeah absolutely he's um he's really good at telling stories like that it's it's ghibli ghibli is amazing at telling sweet little stories that have really really dark and relevant themes and messages that can be translated to younger audiences it's a it's mm. a talent that miyazaki has and like you could throw a stone and meet several computer-generated animations like Disney are doing it, Blue Sky Studios have been doing it for years and whatnot. Mm. But there's nothing quite like Ghibli. There is something really romantic about everything he does. Even war is like... There's it's, so much it's destruction. It's quite pretty when everything's just on fire. <laughs> yeah, everything is yeah. so romantic in Ghibli films. 
It's just mm, and it's so art. yeah, I did. I was thinking at, at one point quite cynically how many years until some studio starts going through Ghibli's backlog and makes a load of live action remakes. <laughs> it's really distressing because Miyazaki's son has taken over the studio. Mm, um, so so Studio Ghibli is the studio. Yes. And Miyazaki what directed this is he sort of the director for most of these films yeah Miyazaki's a director and like he founded it with um Toshio Suzuki who Suzuki is the producer of these films okay so it's like and two then, of them together and they're similar yeah and you were you were saying when you said to me watch House Moving Castle because it's quite interesting at the moment the politics at Ghibli so his mm-hmm. son is taking over yeah so um Miyazaki Jr I guess uh his name's not actually just the surname. Uh, right. <laughs> Heyo Miyazaki. Heyo Miyazaki's son, Miyazaki Jr., is um, taking over the studio. And it's really, really distressing because they've done another Diana Wells, that's her name, Diana Wells novel, which is The Earwig and the Witch. But they have... And that's who wrote whatever this House is Moving Castle, yeah. But they have turned it completely CGI, 3D animation, computer-generated. And that's oh really distressing because the, one of the biggest selling points of Ghibli is that you are looking at animation that in today's standards isn't technologically that difficult, but because there is so much work and personalization on each hmm. cell that is created, it's magical. It's like you watch yeah, it come it to life. Be, might not be technologically impressive, but I mean, that's the point. It's... It's impressive because of the, I suppose, the lack of. Well, he does use CGI, just... but oh. yeah, you could you could tell sort of that the moving castle was, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't wasn't 3D or anything, but it was animated sort of slightly differently. I'm not an animation expert, but do you know well, what I mean? Well, Toshiko Suzuki says that Hayao Miyazaki doesn't understand computers and therefore he doesn't like them and has said on multiple times that he does not like computers. So CG is... So he's a boomer. He is. CG is used simply to smooth out what Miyazaki creates and do things that he possibly couldn't create because Miyazaki's very old. He's like in his 90s and Mm. he may be a bit younger. Sorry, Miyazaki. But he's... um... You're just aging people again. You're good at that. I am. I'm really sorry. You did it with Jackie Chan as well. I know. But it's 67, not 69. Um, But CG is used to kind of like just enhance what Miyazaki does and to do things that potentially he couldn't do. So, yeah, it's kind of like a building block used to Mm. blend so everything is painting-like, whereas the studio has now gone to completely 3D animation and that's really distressing because it's lost its ghibliness. And these, and these. Sorry, I just looked up. He's eighty, not ninety. <laughs> oh God, I'm awful. Uh, so, so this this new film that's come out, this three D one, is uh, been put out as a Studio Ghibli film, has it? Yeah. So it is Ghibli film, but the issue is, Ghibli. it's it's not. When you're moving to three D, completely computer generated animation, you're looking at something that is going to have to compete with the likes of Disney, who have probably 30 animators that specifically work on hair. (laughs) And you've got a much smaller studio that I'm not saying or demeaning Ghibli's size because Ghibli has won multiple Oscars. It's a very, very good studio. Um, But 
because most of it is cell animation previously, you're use, you're using animators who are used to a specific design technique, and you're asking them to do something that they potentially have not trained in or haven't worked in. So there's a real disconnect with the earwig and the witch in which you're seeing this animation that doesn't quite fit with what audiences expect to see today. Like if you look in Frozen 2, you can see the stitches, each individual stitch in Elsa's costumes. Someone has spent hours programming that. Mm. And in the Earwig and Witch, everything is so blocky. So I mean, I'm seeing, I was just looking at a couple of shots from it and it does look a bit 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 yeah bit block but is this mm. not it's might not be a step this first step might be shaky but do you think it's maybe a step towards something better or do you think the studio is just too small to pull off 3d animation in a world where they're in 3d animation they're competing with frozen 2 and I hair don't... animation and snow animation and water animation that's all just basically flawless I don't know if it's that. I think the issue is if Ghibli wanted to move to an animation style like that, it would be fine so long as they kept their Ghibliness. What they market themselves on is what they are good at, which mm. is romanticizing the little details. Everything in Howl's Moving Castle is like a painting. You could take a still yeah. image at any point of that film and it would look like it was a painting, right? You could just hang it yeah. up on your wall and it would be art. You couldn't necessarily do that with CGI or 3D animation because it's, whilst yes, like you're looking at things like Frozen and stuff, it's very, very impressive. It's not really aesthetically pleasing to look at because mm. it's so 3D. It's like, yeah. But um, if, if Ghibli was able to incorporate that handmade um, artistic signature that they have carried out throughout the entirety of their career and plant this on to 3d animation then absolutely they could do it but the issue is the earwig and the witch has lost the fundamental ghibli ideology and that is life is beautiful and so we're going to make every single cell of this animation beautiful does that make mm. sense yeah 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 so that's the issue Oof. with it so is is daddy miyazaki <laughs> still on the payroll or is he just sort of been kicked out entirely no he's um he's retired multiple times and come out of retirement how's moving castle was a out of retirement film so oh really because it was yeah. 2004 yes so where does that sort of track because uh, i've heard of a lot of these films so I've, I've seen spirited away and you were talking about princess mononoke and ponyo is this is this towards the end of of all these ones that you love? I would hope not. Miyazaki is someone who consistently comes in and out when he gets a good idea of what to do. Um, right, so you're you're <laughs> saying he may even come back again? Yeah, but the man has worked very hard and he deserves a good retirement. He's given us hundreds of beautiful films. It's just a mm. shame that his son's taken the, the studio into this direction because it really feels inauthentic to what I guess most audiences recognise Ghibli for. In fact, mm. the first time I saw a trailer for the Earwig and the Witch, I completely did not recognise anyone until I saw the Miyazaki name, and I was like, hey, what the hell? <laughs> uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, uh-oh. So yeah. I don't know if it did well at box office or not. I know it's out. Um, advertising wasn't very good for it, but... I see. It is a it shame. Did. And as he, as he said, 
about what he thinks about this film? Has he given it a thumbs up or a thumbs down or a, I don't know what my son's even doing? Um, I don't think he's 100% happy because there's there's some drama in the biz and that right. is uh, a upcoming director who... Well, not upcoming, he's been a director for a while. Shadow has done, like, One Piece movies and One Piece is quite a popular anime and whatnot. Um, I see. Was originally meant to direct Howl's Moving Castle, but wanted to move it more towards CG, and Miyazaki was very against it. I think mm. that's what happened, anyway. Uh, whatever direction that Hoshada was taking it, Miyazaki was like, no. <laughs> so <laughs> no. that's why he came out to do Howl's Moving Castle. Um, right. She took it off him. Yeah. Fine, I'll do it myself. But there's been, apparently, Miyazaki's a very... Uh, from Hoshida's point of view, anyway, Miyazaki's a very difficult person to work with. <laughs> so, mm. yeah, cause I've seen him in <laughs> in interviews, and he's not he's not a barrel of laughs, is he? <laughs> no, <laughs> Mans is ready to just give up. <laughs> in quite a sort of dark humor way, I think. I like you get the feeling mm. like it's sort of just very dry, edgy jokes. Yeah. Absolutely. I love the one where it's like, filmmaking is just suffering. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I I feel that, that, though. I feel that. Yeah, we can relate. (laughs) So, Miyazaki, because he grew up in post-war Japan from World War Mm. II, obviously, America went a bit too far by nuking it twice. No reason for that. (laughs) Just a little bit. Just just a little too far, you know. Uh, War is atrocious on both ends, but I feel like the environmental Mm. implications of that is just awful. So it must be really, really jarring to grow up in a country that has just had whole cities become no-go zones because of the damage Mm. it's done to the environment and the amount of people who are still suffering from the effects of this radiation you know so um yeah miyazaki is very uh, very very heavily um very heavily influenced by environmentalism and environmentalism is like the joining factor in all of his films so how's moving castle is different to spirited away in regards to love stories and plots um but the environmentalism in both is really important and they are like the MacGuffins of the films. So you see mm. you see more of Miyazaki's critique on the Western world and the Western world's destruction of the environment in Princess Monomoki. So in Princess Monomoki you have um, iron factories that are literally causing forest spirits to come and attack village people. Mm. The village people? <laughs> so like... Uh, At the YMCA? That was really bad. <laughs> you should be ashamed. I hope they get their navy onto that. <laughs> um, but so, because the 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 big the big old planes dropping bombs, they're all sort of just this big metal mm. monstrosity, in and House they have moving the castle. same yeah in house moving <laughs> castle. The the film I've seen, I haven't seen Prince. <laughs> oh yeah, sorry about that. Um, but they sort of mirror the shape and form of Howl when he's in, like, raven mode. Yeah. So there is very much, like, a direct visual comparison between between the big metal scary boys dropping bombs on these cities and then the beautiful nature raven boy just, like, shoom, 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 and just taking them down with his mind and stopping their gears. Yeah, it's very, it's like, it's very spiritual, isn't it, in a way, in that 
Mm. Hell becomes a raven, which is often seen as a sign of omen in multiple cultures and seen as unlucky. Um, yeah. But I think Miyazaki's overall message in that film isn't necessarily that war has a good side or a bad side. Just that war is unforgiving and unrelentless in regards to who it attacks. Because mm, so, whenever he goes out on his nights of of battling the Air Force, he never comes back sort of a valorant hero. He comes back just like a bleeding, feathery mess. Mm. Goes and curls up. Yeah, he does. It's and, not glamorous. Yeah, and there's also, like, um, I, say, I said earlier that Miyazaki often reverses gender roles. And mm. well, not by reverses gender roles, it's just uh, men are very much seen as the ones needed saving as opposed to women so like sophie at first goes to see how because she wants to be young again but she ends up saving how a couple times i think at least mm. and uh <laughs> you see the inspirited away as well and you see it in princess monomoki and all of his films the roles are reversed so mm. there's um <laughs> there's something really like fresh about Ghibli compared to Western animation. Mm, and all the women in this film are like, none of them are particularly glamorous, but he is just ultimate glamour and has a full-on hissy fit when his hair dye situation goes wrong. Yeah, and he's childish and is a, he's a drama queen. He is. Everything he does is ridiculously over the top. Not that I'm saying that women are, because we're stereotyping. <laughs> like, <laughs> but uh, Sophie but is definitely is. the breadwinner of that house. Mm. Although she is staying behind while he fights a war to cook and clean. But she makes hats. But she she does make hats. And they're nice hats. Yeah. Um, and she doesn't yeah, he live is just... free there. She does work there. Mm. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, how is bordering on bipolar? <laughs> yeah. Like the mornings he comes down for his breakfast and sometimes he's like, mm, I'm, going, I'm going to fight the war and he's a big bleeding raven boy and then the next morning he comes downstairs he's like, good morning everybody, put the bacon on. Hey. <laughs> yeah, how's... how's it's like, what hell am I going to get today? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love. And I thought um, him just going really gooey is such a good representation of, like, depression. <laughs> it is. Just like, I'm just so upset. I'm just just going to start excreting goo from my skin. And I'm going to call the shadows from the underworld to come. Yeah. Like, that wasn't... He never got gooey again. He never called those boys again. That's. I think that's that's my... It wasn't a problem. Because it was absolutely what they were going for, which sort of makes it successful. I said I said that it's similar to Spirited Away in that, you know, it's someone coming to a new strange land, and that is very typical for filmmaking and storytelling, is that your protagonist will be a stranger to most everything that happens in the story, mm. and that so they learn it, and they ask the questions like, hey, what's going on here? Because they are essentially us so we can know what's going on and these are the questions we would ask when something weird happens they say hey what's this weird thing because we're reading going hey what is that weird thing and they're like yeah thank you for asking about that weird thing it's such a weird thing do you know what i mean yeah it's uh but in this no but 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 in this it doesn't always do it 
because it's established at the start that there are fantastical elements in this film that everyone knows about. They see the moving castle on the going over the hill at the start, and everyone's like, I mean, they they know about it. They they do think, oh, it's the moving castle. They don't just ignore it, but mm. it's it's a thing that that's the moving castle. So everyone already knows about some stuff, and then when she first bumps into Howl and those weird gooey men are after him, she's like, well, ah, gooey men. But she's is she going, ah, gooey men, because she's never seen gooey men before? And like, oh my God, what are these goo boys doing? Or is she scared because she knows about the goo boys and she knows they're dangerous? And it's not really ever told to us whether that's the case. And then he flies off and... She, again, is quite shocked by the fact, well, I'm flying now, but she never says, boy, I didn't even know flying was a thing until you started flying. She doesn't seem totally phased by a lot of the stuff and doesn't ask a lot of the questions that I found myself asking, and it did just kind of feel like a bit of a, a, bit of a fever dream. But I think that's what they're going for. Yeah, it's like uh, in this world it's already pre-established that there are creatures and stuff so like you see there's mm. a there's a conversation with Hetty her sister and her sister's like oh you must have met a wizard lucky it wasn't how he'll eat your heart hey yeah so like wizards are just a, <laughs> but it were just known and like the king's right hand woman is a wizard all the little yeah. boys that are around helping her are wizards and whatnot so wizards are a yeah, part there's... of society there are those lines that do help. So they say, oh, you burn a wizard. And you're like, okay, so they're all wizards. Mm. But it's not It's not always the case. It felt a bit like, do you know, you know, like when you're, like when you're in a dream yeah. and you're in your living room and there's a big pit in your living room that you might, I don't know, jump through to get to hell. And in your dream, you're just like, yep, yeah, that's my hell pit. <laughs> And then you wake up and you're like, I don't have a hell pit. Why do they think that was just so normal in my dream? What the heck? It's a bit like that. Yeah, it is. It's um, I, I guess it's less handholdy than what you'd expect, if that makes sense. Because mm. like when you watch something from, I have to compare it because there are like two major players, Disney. You um, yeah. Everything is handheldy. It's like one support yeah. is like if we're gonna be real. Uh, strict here we'll compare it to the original cell animation so let's compare it to like Snow White or something which okay. is around the time of the war Snow White was 36 so pre-war um, Snow White is very much like once upon a time there was a girl hi I'm Snow White and <laughs> it's like you know this yeah. is what she does here's me mopping like it's explain narration character does mm. in Miyazaki's film he just, I don't think necessarily that Ghibli feels the need to explain this to people because they want you to look at it and be amazed by everything as opposed to focus heavily on narrative yeah. like hand holding, which isn't. It's, abs- it's absolutely what they were going for. Mm. And I'm not saying that I want, you know, every time there's something that's not from Earth, like a weird goo man. <laughs> You know, she goes, ah, it's the goo people who are from this person and they're coming to get me. And if they get me, then I'll be gooed to death. I don't, you know, because that's the sort of exposition you'd expect from a Mm. lot of films. She just goes, ah, and then flies off with someone and you're just left watching going, who are the goo people? 
why is she flying? Well, the the dub explains it a little bit more when you're watching it with Christian Bale. So, like, obviously, right. with any translations, there are going to be subtle differences. So when you watch sure. sub, you're watching the interpretation of whoever may have done the uh So for an American audience, it was dumbed down a bit. Well... Not even American. I'm just not that distancing much. It's myself like, for some reason. Western. We, we have um, different different words for different things, you know. Um, in Japanese, might have a different meaning or not even have a word in English and vice versa. So um, mm. every translation is going to be different, but in the dubbed version, Christian Bale's like, oh, don't panic, I'm being followed. I'm sorry, yeah. I'm going to have to bore you for a minute. And then Sophie's right. like, oh, when she looks behind and sees all the goo men, and then like he's like... Hold on tight. Ooh. And then he starts yeah. flying. But I mean that's that's still not not totally explaining everything that's happening. But I'm not I'm not saying nah. that I want that. And I'm not saying that it should be that, because it was really good. I loved it that I didn't yeah. follow this film. Because sure I might not have followed the plot completely and, and what this war was about and who was actually waging it and what each sides were, but I didn't even follow the the minutia of the world and what these characters were like there was that there was the scarecrow uh, turnip who turnip probably is, was my favorite character that's great turnip is explained at the end of the film but mm. for most of the film you're like wait so what what is he just a scarecrow is he but you, it doesn't matter it just doesn't matter because it's a it's just a, a dream logic vehicle that doesn't need to explain all this stuff mm. because it's just there to like delve deeper into philosophical messages about human behavior and show off lovely animation like you were saying with all the little detail it's just it's just so happens to be whimsical and unexplainable and it's it's not they're not plot holes because that sort of suggests that there's something that the filmmakers forgot to explain but they're uh, not explaining it on purpose. Because mm. like, there's a bit in the end as well that, like, when Hal first meets Sophie, does he recognise her or does he not? Because we see that Sophie goes back into Hal's past and she screams, wait for me. And Hal just looks over and he's like, what? When he's a child. Mm. And um, Right, okay. So was it a chance meeting that Sophie met Hal? Or did Hal come to Sophie's rescue because he recognised her? Because Whoa, we know that, that Hal cosmic. is... We know how is very selfish. He doesn't step out of the way for anyone. So there's like it's a chance meeting where he she meets Hal for Sophie, but is it for Hal? And also like the whole narrative as well. There's hints that Hal knows who Sophie is and knows what she really looks like. And you know he pulls the curtain over when she's sleeping and she's young again. Mm. And he's just he never mentions it. Doesn't embarrass her like that. But Sophie isn't aware yeah. of anything. Sophie's like wandering through this narrative blindly and just happens to be the hero. How knows all of this detail and I guess adapts with it. He's like, yeah. Oh, I recognise you from my childhood. But yeah, like, you don't I like that know. bit where she went back in time, but yeah, I didn't really I didn't <laughs> I didn't understand it. <laughs> so, like most of this film apparently. But yeah, I guess if that's what that was meant to be, that that they actually met when they were young, however briefly, and and he and that was that wasn't just some weird dream sequence that actually happened. She went back in time and was like, "Hey, you look for me," Whoa, and then fell in a big hole. She was going into Hal's memories. That's why Hal was 
but uh, it's I like that it's on two different planes. So Hal is working from the past and doesn't know the future, and Sophie's working from the future and then will know the past if that makes sense. Mm, so yeah. Hal knows what's going to happen and is following that line. Sophie doesn't know what's going to happen and it's kind of backstepping to meet Hal. So they're like mm. going like this. And and to sort of further what I was just saying about how I don't think you're supposed to know where where mm. our protagonist is the one that doesn't know what's going to happen and, and isn't quite in the know because we're not supposed to be in the know. Yeah, I, I like... You could flip this narrative and, and, and it would be a lot more boring and a lot less whimsical if you did it from Hal's point of view and as a child someone came to him and said look for me and then he found her in a hat shop and said hi it's me and then flew away with her but it it's better to have that reveal at the end that that he already knew who she was this film really helped globalise anime mm, which... yeah I think I remember hearing about it when it came out in what 2004 oh, I must actually... have been like I was five I think I heard about it <laughs> at the time Spirited I mean, it's, Away it's a, it's a kids film probably more so globalised because Spirited Away won an Oscar which was the first you know the first of the first foreign film and animation double whammy um, mm. but I just love this film so much there's something really magical about it it's my favourite I know that it's our friend Bob's favourite as well he loves it I think mm. from it I thought Mononoke was your favourite well I have lots of favourites. Liar. Caught you in a lie there, didn't I? <laughs> I know what's my favourite. There's too many. <laughs> of this and Spirit of the Way, the two I've seen, I think I preferred this. Mainly just for uh, Turnip and Heen. My favourite thing as well is that Turnip Head in the sub mm. says to Sophie, it's... Um, when he's like, "Oh, you're my true love," he kissed me, and Sophie's like, "Sorry, I'm kind of, I'm kind of with yeah. someone." He goes, "It's a woman's prerogative to change her mind." Yeah, I, I can't believe, I because Turnip was Turnip Head was my favorite part of this film, and when he stops them on that going off the cliff and his his little pole is breaking, I I, it was the biggest reaction this film got out of me because I suppose that is at the end of the day, film's main goal is to get you to react to the director <laughs> i think tarantino has a has a quote about how the audience is his orchestra and he's trying to play you with by making you feel this emotion and that emotion mm. when i thought turnip was gonna die and i i think i let out a little yelp and said turnip no <laughs> i was i was quite scared <laughs> and then and then she gives him a little Mwah, and then he turns into a prince which is weird <laughs> And and the old woman's like, ah, I get it. One of those true love's kiss will turn you back into a human type things. And he's like, mm, that's right. And then she's like, nah. Turnip just got absolutely friend zoned in like T minus five seconds. It was crazy. <laughs> I love, my, like my favorite thing about Turnip Head as well is that it's not explained. Like his story doesn't matter. Yeah, it's just like... <laughs> It's just he there. turns back and no one cares. No. Like, Sophie and Howe are too busy, like, smooching in a corner and Turnip's just like, oh, I'll wait. Turn- She'll probably change yeah. her mind. Turnip. <laughs> Watching them essentially fall in love and kiss for the first time. And he's like, yep, that's that's my girl. <laughs> it's great. It's I love really it. It's really uncomfortable. It is. And then uh, also second favourite character is the uh, little, like, 
they call him a dog, and he's definitely got a schnauzer head, but like a corgi body, and but like chicken legs. <laughs> yeah, it's a dog. But yeah, heen, because um, I was a big, big fan of uh, Wacky Races growing up, <laughs> and uh, Catch the Pigeon. And heen is essentially Japan's answer to Muttley, I think, isn't he? I knew he? where this was going. Muttley. Because he's just going, <laughs> That's all his lines. <laughs> I bet that sounds great on the podcast. <laughs> That's all stop. Heen does. I mean, it's a dog; it can't talk, but it doesn't bark. I'm not. I'm not expecting Heen to start coming out with lines because, I mean, it might. It's like this film is weird, and if the dog started talking, that'd be fine as a talking fireplace. And dogs probably have more right to start talking than a fire. <laughs> but uh, Heen doesn't talk, but he doesn't bark. He doesn't woof. He doesn't growl. He just goes. <laughs> <laughs> what I love as well is that they don't put any extra information where they just don't need to. Like, that dog is so expressive and it has no lines. Oh, it's so sassy. <laughs> it is. It's like the way it sniffs its nose in disgust when it doesn't like things. It's just... Yeah. It's so sassy. <laughs> he gets us to carry her up those stairs. <laughs> yeah. It's great. And she's like, why are you so heavy? And he's just like... <laughs> he's stopped. <laughs> That's horrific. Now, Turnip's favourite. Heen's second favourite. Everyone else is a little annoying. Yeah, they are. But they really need a, a stair lift on those palace stairs, don't they? <laughs> or at least a ramp. Good lord. You know, it... I know that was the point, it was a challenge, but oh my god, they basically killed the Witch of the Waste but with those stairs. That's what it was for. It wasn't really a challenge for Sophie. It was more of a. Uh, let's get this really overweight witch to knock herself out on some stairs and then she's mm. going to be selfish and steal the first chair so don't need to worry about the other one in the room let's do it it's a very elaborate plot <laughs> it I, it's, it's a palace it's probably been built for like hundreds of years mm. you know what i mean as, as part of that city's capital like if you're if you're delving into the lore of of Hal's moving castle if those stairs were built with the purpose of one day making a very overweight woman very out of breath, and then in the first room you enter in the palace, there's a single chair, so that she'll be like, "Get out of the way, my chair." Oh. So that's that plot was years in the making, decades, centuries even. It could be possible that they thought we could utilize our environment to our advantage. Yeah. <laughs> like not. Yeah, maybe the plan came after the stairs. It's probably more likely. <laughs> I am, um, yeah, talk, talking of the architecture and stuff, I loved how Miyazaki gave a real culturally Japanese feel to this film while still keeping true to other books set, like, in very Welsh influences. Like, at the beginning of the film, you see this giant... Oh, that's true, actually, hang on. It is pre-established that magic is in this world because the first frame of the film... Right. Is the castle walking through a shepherd's field and he's standing there with a little sheep and he just Yeah Hello And the shepherd doesn't even <laughs> Shepherd's like I house moving castle. Mm. Yeah. Um Yeah, that's true. But I like that it's like really it it looks English and Welsh in its design, but Yeah, it does. It's still Yeah, like you said, there's a shepherd. It's Welsh. Did you have any other thoughts on the film? Yes, okay, so I, I teased that I had a, I had some major theories. Mm-hmm. 
I will tell you if you're correct or not. But it's art, Megan. I'm interpreting it. I'm as right as anyone. No. <laughs> okay. Um, so the film, I, as I already said, I think is all about identity and disguises. And I think most of that in the film is displayed through hats. <laughs> so I'm calling this Howl's Moving Castle Hat Theory. Okay. This is my little sort of 10 minute video that's going to get you know, 5 million views on YouTube. It's called How's Moving Castle Hat Theory. Okay? You ready? No. Sophie puts on her hat at the start of the film. Okay? You with me? No. <laughs> she puts on her hat. Oh, and gosh. she like, she pulls it on her head and she's clearly not happy with this hat. She's like, oh, I hate the way this hat looks. Why am I so ugly? Because she, not that she's ugly, but she thinks she's ugly because she's yeah, that's not like very secure in herself. Yeah. And when she changes into an old woman, she she looks at herself in the mirror the next morning and she says, these clothes finally suit you. Her clothes weren't working for her because, because her life wasn't working for her, if you see what I mean. And so when she changed into an old woman, it wasn't that she changed into a life that does work for her, but she her body changed into a version of herself that matches her clothes. So suddenly she's like all out of place. So she feels like the her best life is passing her by and then her body matches the fact that her best life is passing her by, which her clothes already match that fact, at least in her eyes. Mm. Yeah. And furthered by the point that she makes hats. So she's watching everyone around her find their identity so if her hat if 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 sophie's hat is uh an uh indicator to her identity and her identity is that she's unhappy with who she is and how she lives then she's making hats for other people and that represents their identities mm-hmm. and she's doing that at seemingly her own expense so she's just watching everyone else have fun it's the same as you know scrolling through instagram and and watching everyone else have a better time than you because she's just looking at all these hats like that's a cool hat that's a cool hat why aren't my hats like this why is it my life like these people's lives and then her mum comes back from like her trip boasting about her new fabulous hat fabulous fabulous hat and she's like oh even my mum's living a better life than me with a great big hat mm. hat theory yeah, yeah. <laughs> i'm not done with hat theory don't oh. be wrong <laughs> That theory goes so deep, okay? Um, And throughout the film, she's wearing this hat. Mm -hmm. But whenever she's vulnerable or whenever she's finding a version of herself that she is happy with, she's not wearing the hat, okay? So when she's first getting on Howl's Moving Castle and Turnip Head is, like, hopping along, helping her out, her hat flies off in the wind because in that moment she's scared and she's vulnerable, mm. but then Turnip Head bounces away, retrieves the hat, puts it back on her, and she loses that fear because it's the equivalent of Turnip Head saying, Here's your hat back, here's your here's your here's your bravery. You got this. Okay? Further solidifying Turnip Head as the best character MVP. And and if hats are identities, <laughs> then when she becomes this cleaner She's another layer deep in her identity because mm-hmm. she essentially starts lying to Howl and the kid and all these guys saying, yeah, I'm your cleaner, ba 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 
and when she's the cleaner, she wears this little shawl. She's got a new hat on because it's a new identity, okay? Yeah. And she's wearing this little shawl, and then the castle starts moving, and she mm-hmm. sticks her head out the window, and her, her shawl flies away. And she's like, what? Calcifer, I didn't know you could move the castle like this. I'm so impressed because she's let her guard down again. She doesn't need this identity anymore. She can be herself around the castle because she's just so happy with it. She's loving what the castle can do. Completely lets her guard down. Her hat is gone. Okay? Yeah. Hat theory. I yeah. I vibe with hat theory. No, I'm not done yet. Okay. <laughs> God. When she goes to the palace mm-hmm. as Hal's mother... She's wearing her original hat again. And Hal says to her, you're wearing that hat after all the magic I spent making your dress pretty. She's wearing the hat. The hat is drawn attention to in, like, a few different scenes in such a way where I started thinking, I think this hat's important. Okay? Hat theory. So this is her, by wearing that hat, and if if this original hat is her old woman identity and sort of how she feels a bit useless in society maybe this is her leaning in to that old woman identity she's put the hat back on to go out because for this con to work she has to become the old woman so she puts the hat on she's pretending to be the old woman so she wears the hat that suits an old woman because of what she said she says finally your clothes suit you this is the hat for the old woman hat theory but when things go south at the palace and and they get found out. Sullivan like throws a throws a stick, uh, a spear at them. They get out of the way, but it goes right through her hat. Do you remember? Yeah. Yeah. She has she spears her hat off. Not not just off through. She spears right through her hat. No more disguises. Okay. This is this is. She's still got her old woman skin, but from this point on, she is more confident. She feels more herself, hence the the lack of hat. And it's from this point in the film where more and more, not just when she's asleep, more and more her uh, her body starts sort of regressing back to her, what do you say, she was 18? Yeah. Her 18-year-old self, okay? Because the hat's gone. Not because the hat's gone, but the hat just sort of signifies that she is now getting more and more mm. used to herself. And by the end of the film... She cuts off her little her little ponytail, and she's got this new hairstyle. She's not wearing any hat, and she's she's young again, because she's found a balance. She's got she's got these new clothes. She's got new hair. She's got no hats, which means no disguises, no, no you know no barriers between between the world and her real self. Because this is the new version of her, and the new version of her has like this little grey bob, which is sort of a a nod to the fact that she was this this old soul that felt like life was passing her by and she's still got a remnant of that because that is who she is but she has accepted that and her grey hair shows that that is part of her identity and that she's happy with that yeah to be fair you are bang on uh, Miyazaki does use um, costuming and clothes as a mm. Uh, metaphor for transformation a lot and and meg i'm not done this isn't just um for sophie i think every major character and even every character almost is wearing a hat because once i started noticing that that 
once <laughs> once I came up with hat theory, um, <laughs> once I came up with hat theory, I was like, God, maybe the hats are a bit more significant in this film. Every person in this film is wearing a hat, and every major character, their hat, I think, signifies something about their character. So, uh, the Witch of the Wastes. Uh, oh, I love her hat. Her, she's, she's yeah, she's wearing this this dark feathered hat, and it comes down over her face and covers one of her eyes because she's dark and mysterious. The hat covers her eyes. She has secrets. You mm-hmm. see, that's what her hat is showing. Yeah. And when she gets zapped back to reveal what, so that she looks like her actual age, what's the first thing that happens, Megan? Her hat goes. Her hat goes. Thank you very much. A star. The first thing that happens when they wheel her out is her hat just sort of flops off her off her head. Yeah. So it's it's now we're now we're being told whatever secret that was, you know, her hat covering her her, her half her face, mm. that's gone. This is the real her from now on. Yeah. And she's suddenly a nicer person. She's she's easier to get on with. She's not trying to send weird blobby men after after the pair of them anymore. And she just starts speaking sort of like simple truths. She's just looking at Casper saying, you're very pretty. And when uh, Sophie's in the room, she says, you're in love. She's just sort of sitting there mumbling just truth, really. She's not mm. trying to deceive anyone anymore. I think she's mildly brain damaged. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> because it zaps her to her real age. And like yeah, and her real age shouldn't be alive. Like, she's like nine hundred. Yeah. So, and and that dementia, her real self is characterised by her new lack of hat. Okay. Yeah. Okay, and I'm not done. Um... There are still <laughs> there are still more hats in this film. The uh, the blobmen and the weird flying bat things. They're all wearing the exact same hat. Mm-hmm. Did you notice? Yes. They're like these little straw hats with a little blue band. They're all wearing the exact same hat because they're all just like uniformly generated wherever they're supposed to come from, whenever dark magic created these blobby men. They're all just the same. They're like, they're like, it's like the equivalent of, you know, men in black, just, just a line of men in black suits and sunglasses, apart from it's just hats. The bats are still wearing those little hats, which just show, and it's the same hats as the blobby men, because that is the hat that symbolises just like hired goon, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And the the mm-hmm. child, the kid, he's got a disguise. Part of that disguise is a hood. Just, I mean, it's a literal hood that sort of just covers most of his head. It gives it's him a beard. A disguise, and it gives him a beard. But don't, don't get me started on beard theory. Um, <laughs> beard theory is not real. Don't worry. <laughs> I'm Turnip head, he's wearing a top hat, and mm-hmm. it's it's like broken at the top and flapping off to show he's wacky and he's got whimsy, so he's got a wacky whimsy hat to match. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but he's also been in the countryside for the war's been going on for what, five years. Is it? Or Are you trying to poke some holes in hats? I'm just saying that Turnip head's oh, hat God. is probably flappy because he's been wasting away for as long as the war has been going on. And I'd say that just adds to his characterisation. And finally, the most difficult part of hat theory yes. for, to, for me to come to terms with 
is Hal. Because, I mean, he's probably not the main character, but he's definitely one of the most important. The film's called Hal's Moving Castle. He's Hal. It's Hal. He hasn't got okay? a hat. Hal, exactly, Megan. Hal does not have a hat. So how... I know what you're thinking. How does Hal factor into hat theory? Okay? That is exactly what I'm thinking. That is exactly what you're thinking. Yes. So if hat theory is about identity mm-hmm. and disguise, Hal's hat is his hair. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Stick with me. Because he's wearing this blonde... No, he's not wearing it. His hair is dyed blonde. It's a different colour. It's a disguise because when it when it finally reverts back to his sort of raven-coloured hair because he is a raven so the blonde is is a disguise mm-hmm. because it separates him from his sort of raven alter ego it's also characterization because it's sort of it's this pretty boy look which he's devastated when it's put in jeopardy he's got no hat because we think that he's genuine <laughs> okay he's the love interest do you see what i mean yeah we see him without any hat so anyone who's really watching the film like me not you anyone who's really watching the film sees he hasn't got a hat they know about hat theory and they think he's not got a hat he is he is a straight up guy okay it's sort of the the filmmaker's way of showing yeah of showing he he is he is faking the fact that he's genuine Okay, if no hat equals genuine, no disguise, okay, mm-hmm. he doesn't have a hat. I don't so he's think... not wearing a disguise. But his disguise is that he is genuine. So he can't have a hat. It's sort of like a like an oxymoron. It's like a this sentence is false type situation. So he doesn't have a hat, but he does have dyed hair. And he is wearing a disguise because that is part of the disguise. I'm going to disagree with you on your perspective of how, like, because whilst how does, he is pretending to be multiple people in order to avoid the draft. Mm. I would say his personality is unwavering in the majority of the film. And his here's personality why. is so wavering. <laughs> no, 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 no. Here's why, okay? So with Sophie, we see moments of tension where... She she's very passionate, but she she pushes it down, she bottles it up, and then there are moments where she just you know shouts at how she's like, stop being such a selfish dude. You've never I've never been pretty in my entire life, and you're just sulking even though you're still hot with ginger hair, right? There's moments mm. like that. How is consistently selfish. He forces Calcifer to do stuff. He leaves. Is it? He leaves Mark alone. Is it Mark? The kid? He's Mark. The, the beard boy. Child. Oh, the child. Yeah. Sure. He leaves Marky alone. And Marky Mark. Marky Mark. And he's a child, right? Sure. Uh, he goes and stops bombs and whatnot just for the sake of protecting his own area, not actually to help people. And, like, fair enough, there's two sides to every war and it doesn't... There's no good side, there's no bad side. War is war. House personality is just as childish from the beginning as it is at the end but he's i'd say i'd say no (laughs) because it was like i was saying he's just like 
one one time he's just like nothing's right anymore and then he comes down next morning he's like hey friends let's have some bacon but i wouldn't say it's not genuine i'd say it's more uh uh inexperienced immature as opposed to deliberately although he does deliberately well that theory isn't set in stone so (laughs) no i agree with that theory absolutely right how's hair is his narcissism he his yeah. hair is echo and he is narcissist and he is looking in that pool of blonde hair calling himself forever falling in love with his reflection and mm. uh you know but he's also like a disguise to separate him from the raven haired truth yes absolutely well i'm 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 glad you're you're I'm on, board. on board with yeah. that theory no i am also on board with how i just think for a different reason I think okay. he dyes his hair because he is narcissistic as opposed to ungenuine because he, like, like I said, their love story is they are the same people from the beginning and the end. They just learn traits that better themselves, but they mm. don't change for the each other. the opposite of Greece. Yeah, exactly. Sandy. Because Greece is all about <laughs> make sure you change and then you can have love. <laughs> yeah. Sophie's doesn't matter like, who you are in your soul you must dress like a nerd for your girlfriend and your girlfriend must dress like a bad boy for you and you've got to be about 30 years older than the people we're trying to portray exactly <laughs> but yeah I'm totally on board with that theory final thoughts on How's Moving Castle good good you liked uh, um, yes <laughs> do you remember do you remember at the end of the first episode where you said we'd rate every film out of three separate 10 out of 10s. We just and then done. I said, that's never going to sustain. And then you said, all right, we'll just rate it out of 10 out of 10. And then the second episode, we didn't even rate anything out of 10 out of 10. Well. And you, you were adamant in the first episode. No, I'll keep it up. I'll make sure we rate everything 10 out of 10. Is this an Attack Megan podcast? Because last time you were calling one of my favourite films a plastic film with the plastic people. And now... Those... Yeah, so plastic. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I don't think the podcast is an Attack Megan podcast, but I think our friendship is an Attack Megan friendship. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The I'm... podcast is just an extension of that. <laughs> but yeah, good. I, I, did, I did like this film. I think I liked it the most out of uh, Drunken Master and House Flying Daggers, and I think I liked it more than Spirited Away. Mm-hmm. And it's it's I haven't delved too far into the world of anime, but it's probably my favorite anime it's very pretty even if you don't like the narrative just look around it it's like it is just so pretty Mm. but i wasn't saying that i didn't like the narrative i was saying that (laughs) i I didn't understand the narrative and i was saying that i think that's the point Mm. because it's all about hats (laughs) please thank you very much for listening to this episode of the second unit thank you we have been the second unit freddie newey and megan dobson uh goodbye and thank you for listening goodbye